So let's open our Bibles today to the book of Luke. As I mentioned before, we have, uh, we've been talking for the last couple of weeks, and we will continue to do so, about the purpose of the anointing of God. And first of all, what is the anointing? What is that? It shows up all through the scripture. What, what does it mean? Well, you can't separate the anointing from the Holy Spirit. They're one and the same. And, and often when we're using the term the anointing, it's the, it's the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the empowering and the, the life-giving nature of the Holy Spirit in you, around you, through you. In the Old Testament, people had times where the Spirit would come upon them and they'd prophesy. Times where the Spirit of God would come upon them and enable them and empower them to do something. But here in the New Testament, Jesus didn't say, you're going to have the Holy Spirit for this little time, and maybe when you come to church, then you'll have the Spirit. No, he said that he was going to give you the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit in your life is the pledge of your adoption. So that's the proof in your life that you're actually saved. Now, a lot of people have said, well, what's the proof that I'm filled with the Holy Spirit? Uh, you know, I, how, how do I know that I'm filled with the Spirit? Well, when you became a believer, you received the Spirit of God. That's part of the deal. You couldn't have got saved without the Holy Spirit. Now, we believe that there is a baptism of the Holy Spirit. We believe there's being filled with the Holy Spirit. But how many of you know that in Acts chapter 2, they were filled with the Holy Spirit? But by Acts chapter 4, they had to be filled again. The Scripture says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled, and it literally means, in, in the Greek, it's a, it's a continuous verb. It's not just a one-time thing. It's continuous. Keep being filled with the Spirit. And that's a challenge in all our lives is not whether or not we're saying, you know, like David, Lord, don't take your Spirit from me. That's not at risk here. God's not going to take his Spirit away from you. That's the pledge of your adoption, and he's not, he's not removing that the first time you have a day where you have some doubt. No, the Holy Spirit is your pledge. He, he'll never leave you nor forsake you. And yet, we can be full of the Spirit or we could just be really full of ourselves. And the gifts of the Spirit are certainly wonderful uh, outflowing of the Holy Spirit, but also the fruit of the Spirit. I mean, if you, if you operate in the gifts of the Spirit, but there's no evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in your life, then those gifts will be uh, short-lived and not very life-giving because without the fruit of the Spirit, we're not following Jesus. So when we look at Luke chapter 4, what does he say? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to do this. So the anointing has a purpose behind it. And the purpose isn't just to make you feel cool. Thank God for that, but that's not the purpose. The purpose is to empower you to carry out the ministry of Jesus. Jesus said, this is what I'm here to do. And we, we, we might say, well, he did it. He accomplished it. But like I said, if you read Luke and Acts together, which you should because they are meant to go together. They're meant to be a part one and a part two. Acts starts out like this. Acts 1, the very first words are, in my first account, most beloved Theophilus, I told you about the ministry that Jesus began to do in all his time here on the earth. So everything Jesus did from being born to uh, being baptized and filled with the, and the Spirit resting upon him to all the healings and all the miracles and all the deliverance to dying on the cross, being rose again and ascending to the Father. That's all just the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The continuation of Jesus' ministry takes place through the church. 
The age of the church began on the day of Pentecost, and the age of the church will continue until Jesus Christ sets his kingdom up here right on earth. Until then, we have a kingdom that dwells within us and is around us. There's still a, a conflict here. We're still in a time of conflict. Because the Bible says there'll be a day where Jesus rules with a rod of iron. And that means his will will absolutely be done all the time. That means he's ruling, he's reigning, and no one else gets to rule and reign. He's ruling and reigning. And funnily enough, funnily enough, funnily is not a word, is it? It is now. Funny enough, funny enough, that's when things start to work. That's when the lion lays it down with the lamb. That's when the swords are beaten to plowshares. That's when all of the things that are wrong are made right again. But until then, we have a world in resistance. We have a world that's still in tension. And you know that because you came out of the world and now you're in his kingdom. That kingdom travels with you. That kingdom expands around you. That kingdom is within you, as Jesus said. He said the kingdom of God is within you. He said every time they went to preach the kingdom, tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you today. Now, we talked on Wednesday night, because on Wednesdays we've been going through the book of Revelation. We talked on Wednesday night how John said, I'm a partaker, I'm a fellow partner with you in the kingdom, in the tribulation, and in the perseverance which are in Christ. And you wonder how all those three things go together. Well, they absolutely go together because the kingdom of God, when it conflicts with the kingdoms of this world, produces some, some opposition. It produces tribulation because the kings of the world aren't just laying down. The forces of darkness aren't just laying down. In fact, one of the proofs that the kingdom of God is among us is that there's some pushback. Because if, you're not, if, if, if the kingdom of God is not bugging anybody, it's not, it's not causing any issues, then it's really not a powerful kingdom at all. But when Jesus preached the kingdom, other kingdoms fell. Now, his followers wanted, the, wanted Rome to fall. They wanted, they wanted earthly kingdoms to fall. But what really needed to fall throughout the ministry of Jesus was the kingdom of darkness and its grip on the people. That was the real need. So they, they confront him in Acts chapter 1 before he ascends and he goes, they say, when's the kingdom coming? When's the kingdom coming to the earth? In other words, when, now you, you've died, you've rose again, you're obviously alive, so now, is it, is it now that you're going to like, you know, go and just drag Caesar out by his ear and kick him out, out the front step? Is it now that you're going to set up your kingdom and, and rule on a throne? And he goes, no. It's not up to you to know when that's supposed to happen. That will happen, but you don't know when that's going to happen. But you will receive power, kingdom, ruling, power, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses both here, Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So what do we see there? The kingdom of God is a kingdom of power. It's not the kind of power that the world thinks is, 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 is important. It's, it's greater, it's more powerful, it's more real. It's the power over darkness. It's the power over those rulers and principalities and authorities that we don't even see right now. There'll be a day when every dictator, when every guy who's got, you know, <laughs> whether he be a dictator or a president or a prime minister or a king, all of these men and women of great earthly power will bow their knee to Jesus Christ. He 
will have a sash on him that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And they will find out either by will or by sword that they have to bow to that name. Right now, though, we get to be part of the invisible, powerful kingdom of Jesus Christ. And that is linked, you can't separate it, it's linked to the power of the Holy Spirit. I want you to see something. We've been talking about Luke 4 and Jesus' message of the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and he's anointed me to do this. But what's the setup for that? In the past couple of weeks, we've always just started right there where he opens the book to the book of Isaiah, to Isaiah 61. He says, this is what I'm here to do. But what was he doing right before then? Right before that, he was baptized by John in Luke chapter 3. Baptized by John comes out of the baptism. What happens during that baptism? Did Jesus need to repent of his sins? No, this is a real easy question, guys. Everybody's like, hmm. What Bible do you read? That depends. No, he didn't. He didn't have anything to repent of. And John's baptism was a baptism of repentance to everyone else. So that's why John's so confused. Like, why do I need to baptize you? But what happened when he was baptized by John? Something came, right? The Holy Spirit came and descended as a dove. It doesn't necessarily mean that the Holy Spirit was a dove. It's just like a dove, the Holy Spirit descended. Whether they saw it and thought it was a dove or whether they saw it, that's something weird. And the best thing I can describe it looks kind of like a dove would descend. I don't know. But the difference was when the Holy Spirit came, he remained on Jesus. And John said, that's how I knew. He said, I didn't even recognize who you really were until I saw the Holy Spirit come on you and remain. Then I knew you were the Messiah. I knew you were the one we've been waiting for. Immediately after he is filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, here's what happens. In Luke chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. So up to this point, he's always been the son of God. He's always been the son of man. But something is different. It's the Holy Spirit. Jesus, and this is the beginning of his ministry. The ministry did not begin before the baptism. The ministry began with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. For 40 days being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. And then we go through the temptations that the devil tried to tempt Jesus with. And of course, you know the story that Jesus resisted him with the word of God. And Jesus was tempted with all the things, maybe not the things that you'd even be tempted with, maybe some of them, like you're hungry, so why don't you turn this stone into bread? That's a natural temptation. Why don't you just give in to your flesh? Why don't you just give in to your belly? I mean, it's funny to me that it says after 40 days, he became hungry. After 40 days, after 40 minutes, I become hungry. (laughs) After 40 days, he's like, I think I'm hungry now. And that's temptation as well. You, You can do something about it, can't you? And then he's tempted with, well, if you worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Isn't that what you're after? Now, why was Satan able to offer all the kings of the world, kingdoms of the world? Because Jesus calls him over and over again, especially if you read the book of John. Jesus over and over again calls Satan the ruler of this world. 
Paul calls him the God of this world, little g, God of this world. Now, that almost sounds weird to our ears, right? We would never say, Satan, you are the king of the world. If you started saying something like, first of all, why are you talking to Satan? But secondly, if we said that, somebody would like want to smack you because you don't, you don't give him any credit. But Jesus said, yeah, he's ruling the world right now. Look around you. Look around. I'm certainly not, this is, I mean, I, I, I right now am not making Caesar do, it, do what Caesar's doing. Now, is God, does God have the power to make Caesar do whatever he wants to do? Yes. And he says, the heart of the king is in my hand. I'll, I'll make it do. God certainly showed us with Nebuchadnezzar that he could get his way. But the world itself was being ruled. And Jesus had to come to set them free from that. After 40 days, he was tempted in three different ways. And then in verse 13, it says this. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So that whole story is bookended. It's bracketed by the statement of Jesus being full of the Spirit. He goes into the wilderness full of the Spirit, and then what does he do? Why is he even in the wilderness? Because this is the time where he's going to have that showdown with the evil one. This is his time where he is going to resist him at every angle from every way and every area you'd be tempted with, Jesus was tempted with, and he's going to win. And when he wins, because remember, Jesus said, if I'm going to go into a house and steal something, which is... Just for your records, did you know Jesus gave you a tip on how to break and enter and get away with it? So if I'm going to go in a house and steal something, first you've got to bind the strong man. Tie him up. Then you can steal everything. You know, don't take Jesus' advice in that area. He says, but first you've got to tie the guy up that's going to stop you, and then you come back. And so he says, he says like, first, the first thing I got to do is bind the enemy. It's, it's, to, it's to, 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 to stop him and, and take his power. And then I come and I set people free. So Jesus goes into the wilderness full of the Holy Spirit. He beats the devil. He comes out and he's full of the Spirit going into Nazareth, going into Galilee. And this is where he preaches the message. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He had declared war on the power of darkness. And we'll talk about this later, but Luke 4, after he gives this message, and after his own hometown kind of rejects him, if you read the rest of Luke 4 and Luke 5, it's just Jesus kicking, kicking, I want to say this in a nice way, (laughs) just kicking butt all the way through. It's just Jesus flexing. It's Jesus showing his power. And he's not just showing off his power. He's delivering. He's saving. He's healing. He is destroying the work and the building of the devil. Completely destroying it. So it says in Luke 4.18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And we've talked about this that uh, in the next few weeks, we're going to be going through each one of these things. We talked last week about the gospel to the poor. Today, we're talking about that release to the captives. And, and to be honest, you might say, well, what's the difference between release to the captives and freedom to those that are oppressed? 
And today we're going we're gonna to approach those things from a different angle. We're going to take another week to talk about the, those that are bound and oppressed by the evil one. And to be honest with you, they're, they're actually, they go together quite well. And there's times that they overlap. So I'm not trying to make these five or six different things. They all go together, but we're just going to look at them and pay special attention to this one this week. To pay special attention to what he said when he said, I have come to proclaim release to the captives. I think there's a reason that Jesus says that in two different ways. That he says release to the captives and then he says to set free those that are oppressed. I believe they go together, like, like they go together hand in hand and yet they're two different angles. Especially when you look up the word captive. Now when we think of Somebody who's captive, we just think of somebody in a prison cell, right? A prisoner, somebody who's in jail. We all know that Jesus didn't like literally go around and say, hey, what, what you in for? Oh, I murdered a guy. Don't worry, I'll, I'll, I'll get you out of here. Click, 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 and let these guys run free. When you look up that word captive, it's not just somebody that's in jail. It's somebody who has been captured in war. In, in, in the Hebrew in Isaiah 61 that he's quoting from, it literally means someone who has been carried off. Somebody who has been captive in war and is now the property and the prisoner of the one that took them. What do you think he might be referring to? Who are the captives? I believe we all are. We all were. Because when Adam sinned, he, he got us all in a heap of trouble. The Bible says through one man's sin, we all came under sin. We all died. And we all became captive to the power of the enemy. That's why it says what man could not do, Jesus did. We had no way to get out of it. Talks about somebody that's been carried away as a prisoner. And yet Jesus came and says, I've come to proclaim release to the captives. I came to tell them there's a new sheriff in town. I came to tell them there's a new kingdom. I came to tell them that they're free now. And you see that message not only preached but demonstrated as he walks through Galilee, as he walks through Israel, as he walks through Samaria, proclaiming things are different now. There's a new kingdom. What were, what were the, some of the evidences of the kingdom? When he sent his disciples, he said, go preach the kingdom. What did he say? Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead. Cast out evil spirits. When he cast out those evil spirits, he was demonstrating the old kingdoms are falling and a new kingdom is here. No king, no kingdom can thrive other than my kingdom when I come. When he crossed the sea, and went to the, to the place of the Gadarenes. When he came over there and found people demon-possessed, one man in particular who was so messed up that he would go into the graveyard, lived in the graveyard, they'd chain him up and he'd break the chains. He was naked all the time. He would cut himself in agony. And when Jesus went to the other side, it's interesting what those demons that have been oppressing that man say to Jesus. They say, what business do we have to do with one another? We know who you are. What business do we have to do with one another? Have you come to torment us before the time? That's an interesting thing to say. What time are they talking about? 
What are they so afraid of? They know that there's a day of judgment coming. What they haven't realized is that the day of judgment was there. That judgment went with Jesus. The king was in town. And when he set foot on those shores, I believe completely that there was a very sen- a territorial sense of this is our property. You can mess around in Galilee, but what are you doing here? Right? Because Jesus had already been casting evil spirits out by the bunch back home. But when he cast the sea, they were, they were, they were frightened. They were, what, are you, what business do we have to do with one another? Why are you here? This is our territory. And he says, well, you don't have any territory anymore. I've came, I've come to proclaim release to the captives. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed us to proclaim release to the captives. To those that have been prisoners of war. To those that have been captured. To those that, listen, we were born into captivity. Like the Israelites were born into captivity in Egypt. But a man was sent by God to proclaim release to the captives. And when he came, the Bible says that he came and he said it and they kind of got their hopes up and then Pharaoh made things harder for them. And then it says because of the lowness of spirit, because of their despondency, they could not hear the words that Moses said. So because they were so beaten down by the cruelty of what had been done to them, they could not hear the message of freedom. You walk around and you begin to see this over and over and over again. People that are so beaten down by the things that life has brought them that they get to a point where you say you can be free. You don't have to deal with that. You you don't have to live without the Savior. You don't have to die. You don't. You, I mean, this. There's a new life. There's a better way. And some people just can't hear it because their spirit has been so beaten down. They're so low. And what did Jesus do? He lift, lifted the man, lifted the woman out of the mud. He raised them up. He came to proclaim release to the captives. You ever wondered how Jesus could say, rise, take up your bed and walk, your sins are forgiven, before the cross? Like, what right did he have to say your sins are forgiven before he died on the cross for those sins? We know that God is outside of time, but we're born into time. So God is not living from beginning to end. He's not saying, I just can't wait for 2018, wonder what's going to happen. He's already there. He's here, he's there, he's at the Battle of Hastings. He's in all these places at once. And yet, Jesus begins to speak in a way that things are already accomplished that have not yet been accomplished. He says, in John, he says, the ruler of this world has been judged. Now, that judgment was solidified. That judgment was made complete through the work of the cross. But in Jesus' mind, it was done. In Jesus' heart, it was done. So Jesus was forgiving sins. He was setting people free. He was telling people, I'm here now. Things are different. There's a new king. There's a new kingdom. How is a man like David able to say, 
Blessed are those whose sins you've pardoned. Wash me with hyssops. I will be as white, I'll be whiter than snow. How is David able to say that in the Old Testament? Because scripturally, you find out in the book of Psalms that this man was living and in 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 in, in, in interpreting and seeing things in a prophetic way that he began to see what Jesus, he began to look ahead and see the work of the cross, even though he didn't understand it. Jesus said about Abraham, Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced. And so Abraham was justified by that faith in what Jesus would do. The message that we get to preach, guys, is offensive because the message we get to preach is a message of resistance. The message we are preaching is a message that messes with the kingdoms of this world and it will bump up against the power of this world. So in the book of Acts in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, they begin to preach Jesus and it messes with the economy of Ephesus because the economy of Ephesus is built on idolatry. It's built on selling these little silver figures of Diana, Artemis. It's built on tourism dollars of everybody that would come on pilgrimages to visit this grand temple. And when Jesus has preached, people stop buying it. So what happens? A riot. When Paul and Silas are in Philippi and a, a little girl, a little slave girl is delivered from that spirit that allowed her to tell people's fortunes and she no longer can tell people's fortunes, but she no longer has an evil spirit. They beat Paul and Silas and put them in prison. Why? Because they are messing with the power of that day. And God's not afraid to mess with our power systems and our, our kingdoms of this world. And you know what? I don't care what country we're part of and how thankful we are. I am thankful for Canada, but the kingdom of God will mess with the power in Canada. There is no God's chosen country other than the country that we belong to, the people of God, the holy nation, the peculiar people. Should we be involved? Should we be a part of what God's doing? Should we be involved in government? Should we be involved in raising our voice? Absolutely we should. But understand this, the kingdom of God will always bump up with the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of darkness. So Jesus begins to preach it. I want you to see what he says in John chapter 12. I'm going to read you three verses from John that show that things are different. John 12, 27, Jesus says, Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel spoke to him. But Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, in other words, if I'm crucified, I will draw all men to myself. What a statement. Now, the ruler of this world has been judged. What does a ruler do? He controls. 
He influences. He dominates. He rules. So how could you be part of a world in which the ruler of this world is the devil and not be controlled in some way by the devil? That's, that's a weird thought. It's probably not the first thing you want to tell people in Safeway. You know, you're being controlled by the devil right now. We got this picture in our mind because scripturally we actually see people that are demonically possessed. Yeah? And we, we still see this. I don't, that hasn't gone anywhere, guys. If you think that went anywhere, I want to ask you why. Right? Now, if it, if, if, if it just stopped when Jesus rose from the dead, maybe you could sell me that story. But all through the book of Acts, evil spirits are still dominating people. Do you think they just said, well, John's dead, let's quit. <laughs> Acts 28's written, we're done. No, there's still going to be that until Jesus puts them all in their place. But we're part of that judgment now. But maybe if you just went up to random strangers and said, you're being controlled by the devil, that might not be the best way to reach him right there. But it's true, we all were. I want to read you something from Ephesians. And you can flip with me in all this or you can just mark it down and read it later because I'm going to be flipping through some stuff fairly quickly today. But in Ephesians chapter 1, sorry, I said 1, but I meant chapter 2. And you knew that I meant that because you could tell. (laughs) Ephesians chapter 2 said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you've been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Notice that it says, you used to walk on a course. A course means a predetermined path that you're, that's already been laid out. And you probably didn't know you were being led around. In fact, one of the great idols of our culture is the idol of independence and self-determination. Individuality. I do what I want to do. Well, he tells us here in Ephesians chapter 2, you doing what you wanted to do, you thought that was your idea, but that's actually a course that was laid out by the prince of the power of the air. Hang on, who's the prince of the power of the earth? Sounds like Lord of the Rings or something. What are we talking about? We're talking about Satan himself. Little P Prince. Sounds like a rapper, doesn't it? (laughs) But it's not. It's 
Some Christians are even offended by the language Jesus uses talking about Satan, calling him the ruler of this world, Paul calling him the God of this world, prince of the power of the air. How dare you give such titles to Satan? Well, you can be holier than Jesus if you want. And you could be more righteous than the Bible if you want, but I think you might be wrong. I think we need to recognize that there's a power at work and that you were captive to that power. Does it mean that he's the rightful ruler? No. But it means that when mankind gave up the keys, they gave up the keys to the wrong guy. And every time we thought we were doing what we wanted to do, we were actually doing what he wanted us to do. But then God, being rich in mercy, loving you so much, sent his son to die on your behalf, kicked the doors open and said, I came to tell you, you don't have to be ruled anymore. You don't have to be captive anymore. It's like when David came back to Ziklag and all his buddies were with him, all his soldiers were with him, and they found that their wives and their children had been taken away. And everybody in his army wants to kill him because it's his fault. And it says he encourages himself in the Lord and he inquires of the Lord. He says, bring me the ephod. I want to ask God what he wants me to do. And God says, you pursue them. You go after them for you will surely overtake them and you surely will recover all. That is a picture of what Jesus did for us. That we, he, we, we were those people in Ziklag that were carried off by the enemy, carried off as prisoners of war, captive, even if we didn't know we were captive, like the Israelites in Babylon who'd been there so long they forgot they were in captivity but somebody said it's time to be free pursue overtake for you will recover all and Jesus did exactly that he said I've come to proclaim release to the captives Ephesians says that we were held captive we were walking along a predetermined course even though we thought we wrote the story the story was being written by the wrong guy but we've been delivered in Colossians 1 it says this Colossians 1 verse 13 says for he rescued us from the domain of darkness. What does domain mean to you? Domain means it's control, right? Domain comes from the Latin word which means well, I mean it's not of course this scripture wasn't written in Latin, but our English word domain comes from a Latin root which means lord. So you know dominoes and dominos Christos, you know, like all that scary Latin music that we want to freak people out with. Dominos meant, meant Lord, you know, somebody who's ruling and reigning. A domain is somewhere where another Lord is controlling you. He rescued us from the domain of darkness. I mean, this is, this is like the greatest movie no one's ever written. He rescued us. He went, and the Bible says he took captivity captive. He took captivity captive. So those that made us captive, he took captive. He won us back. The kingdom of God suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. We have a God who wasn't afraid to kick down doors and lay his own life down to take you home, take you back, win you back. He rescued us from the domain of darkness 
and transferred us. Thank God. Don't you just love that God didn't just say, hey, you're not a prisoner anymore. Good luck. See you later. Have fun on your own. But he took us out of darkness and he transferred us into his kingdom. And he gave us a seat at his table. And he said, no, no, you're not an adopted kid like we think of adopted. You are mine. You're my, you have full rights. You sit at my table, not as a guest, but as a son, as a daughter. I took you out of that domain of darkness. Whether you knew it or not, you were being controlled. And whether, you, whether they know it or not, the world around us is being controlled. And the reason we don't know we're being controlled is because it feels like we're making these decisions for ourselves. I want this. And then like any addiction, it starts out with, I want this. And comes to the point where you say, I can't quit. It's got me. You know, I, I never, I had friends all through life that fell captive to addiction. And not one of them said when they first started something, I can't wait to be addicted. They all thought, this will be fun. I can do this, and I can control it. But you couldn't control it. We all thought we were making our own decisions, but we weren't. But Jesus came to preach, proclaim, release to you. Release to the captives, to those that have been carried off. And how he did it was so wonderful. He comes out of the water full of the Spirit. He goes into the wilderness full of the Spirit. He comes out of the wilderness full of the Spirit. He goes into the synagogue full of the Spirit. He preaches the gospel full of the Spirit. And then he just starts wrecking everything the enemies tried to build for millennia. First John says, for this purpose. And he's what he's talking about, if you read in 1 John 3, he's talking about the fact that when, we're, when, we, when we were outside of Christ, we were stuck in sin. We were abiding in sin. We were practicing sin. But he says, now you've been brought out. Now you're abiding in Christ. And no one who abides in Christ is stuck in that anymore. You are free from that. Maybe you keep wandering back to that because you think that's the way you are. But you're not that person anymore. And he goes on and he says, so we're not captive to that anymore. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifest to destroy, to demolish, to annihilate, to unbuild the works of the evil one. Brick by brick. And he unbuilds. That's what the word destroy means, to unbuild. Destruct is the opposite of construct. He unbuilds everything the enemy has tried to build. And he constructs his kingdom in you, around you, and through you. The message we get to bring is not a message of, come to my church, there's lots of people who will talk to you. Thank God there's love in the body of Christ. The message we have to bring is not simply, you know, don't you need some fire insurance? You don't even have to believe it, but would you, what if you're wrong? Wouldn't you hate to go to hell? No, the message we get to preach is that there is a Savior who radically saved us bought you back from death, saved you from hell, saved you from hell after life and saved you from the hell in this life and has come and he said, there's a new king and he's the rightful king. Yes. 
and we carry it with us. The Holy Spirit is the one that brings his kingdom into our life. It's not up to you to know the date and the time that I'm going to come, set my scepter on the earth, and make every dictator, president, and king bow to me. But you will receive power. You will receive a kingdom. You will enact the kingdom. You will walk out the kingdom when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And what did the power enable us to do? You will be my witnesses. I said all that to say this. Jesus proclaimed release to the captives. The Bible says he's given us a word of reconciliation. The word of freedom, the message of freedom is the message of the gospel. And every single one of us carries it with us. And every single one of us has the opportunity right now, right today, right this week to do the same thing that Jesus did, full of the Holy Spirit, to go into the world and say, the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to bring back those that have been captured. To go back from Ziklag to the, to the army of the enemy and take back what the enemy has stolen. And maybe there's people in your family that have been stolen. Maybe there's people in your workplace that have been taken and captured because we were all born into captivity. But Jesus came to set us captives free. And that's so life-giving and radical that there's no better message we could ever hear. There's nothing better that I could ever preach to you than the simple message of the gospel to set you free. And yet somehow we're offended at the thought that someone else might be offended by what we have to say. Can I propose to you that when people are offended at the gospel, it's not people, it's the force that's trying to control those people. Could, could I suggest to you that when you come to rescue someone from prison, maybe the jailer is not happy you're there? My, can I suggest that that little slave girl needed freedom, but it was her slave masters that didn't want her free? The scripture says, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of them that believe not so that they would not see the light of the gospel. So when someone is troubled by the message we bring, it's not the person that's the problem. It's the power that's controlling that person. Because God wants nothing better to see that person free and the enemy wants nothing better than to keep them bound and you have to be okay with the fact of just not taking it personally of walking in love being a peacemaker walking in that power of the Holy Spirit not just to say things that aren't popular but to receive the backlash when it isn't popular and be okay with the fact not everybody thinks you're the greatest and just say his name matters more than my name. Amen. But walk it out saying, listen, there's a force that's been controlling people for too long and we're not okay with it because Jesus wasn't okay with it. And the gospel will set people free. And Jesus said this in John chapter 8. He said, you're of the devil. Now, 
once again. <laughs> Stuff you don't bring at mom's group. <laughs> you know why your kids are, so, your kids are doing that? Because you're the devil. Like, that's not going to go over well. And I wouldn't recommend it unless, unless it was really appropriate for the time. But Jesus said to the Pharisees, he says, you're of the father, the devil. He said, if you were of, you keep saying you're heavenly father. He said, he said, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And he says, who the son sets free is free indeed. And they say, what do we need? What do you say? We're not free. We've never been slaves to anyone, said the people who were under bondage to the Roman Empire. Said the people who were previously under bondage to the Seleucid Empire. Said the people who were under bondage to the Babylonians. Said the folks who were under bondage to the Egyptians. We've never been slaves to anyone. He says, yeah, you have. He says, you're a slave to your own sin. But when I make you free, I love that phrase, when the sun makes you free. He doesn't say when the sun coaxes you into freedom. There is a making free when you will receive it if you will receive it if you will accept it then Jesus Christ that that act of setting you free is not a passive act it is a violent act it's just not violent against you although you die in the process you okay with that (laughs) but he gives you his life it is a It is a wonderfully aggressive, beautifully violent act of freedom and liberation. It's the soldiers that show up at the concentration camp and say, these guys are now free. It's David going to Ziklag and saying, the Lord says, go and take them. We're going to take them home. We'll recover all. It's Moses showing up in Egypt and saying, God's heard your cries. Now it's time to get out of this country. That's your message. That's your message. It's a message of reconciliation. It's a message of freedom. And don't ever be too afraid to proclaim the kingdom of God amongst the kingdom of darkness. For the kingdom of God is unshakable. It is unbreakable. You can't imagine how much more powerful God's kingdom is. We are the ones that get to proclaim it. I told you I'd read three things from John, and I will right now as we close. We read in John 12, in John 14, he says this. John 14, 27 says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You've heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I've told you before it happens so that when it happens you may believe. I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of the world is coming and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. I love that statement. I think every one of you should say that. The ruler of this world has nothing in me. No power over me, no control in my life. John 16, he says this. Verse 6, he says, But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, that it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I did not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. What will the Holy Spirit do, I wonder? Don't you think he'll anoint you to do exactly what he anointed Jesus to do? And when he comes, 
He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they don't believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And I love this. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Jesus brought justice back to the world. There's still a ruler of this world wandering around, but here's the good news. He's a pretender now. And anyone that's still captive doesn't have to stay captive. I would hope that we'd have the same burning sense of justice that Jesus had. It's not okay that people are still in prison when they've already been declared free. When the price has been paid for their freedom. It's not okay that the ruler of this world is still acting like he's the ruler when the kingdom of God has been established through the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection and goes with us. It's not okay. When you see your family at Thanksgiving, it's there's such love and compassion and frustration that comes out all at once. Right? Because all the Facebook opinions are now in front of your face in real life. And Facebook you can just close, but you can't close your uncle. Right? It's always the uncle that we talk about. Poor uncles. I love you uncles. I wish I was an uncle. But uh, we're face to face and we say, God, how much more do I have to put up? with, you know, like how long do I have to deal with this? And I think the response most often is Jesus saying, don't you think that if I could put up with you and I could love you back to life that you can do the same? And would you just stop thinking that these people are your enemy and just start realizing that the enemy is the one you can't see? I didn't finish that verse about the God of this world blinding those that believe not, but it's a really good verse because it goes on to say this, but God that said, light be out of darkness, has caused the, glor- the light of God, the glory of God in the face of Christ. He's shone the light of him, himself into our hearts to show the glory of God in the face of Christ. That means the solution to the God of this world blinding everyone is that God caused his light to shine in your heart so that you can show the glory of God through Jesus. So next time you're so frustrated that people just can't see what you see, get over yourself and start believing that the same God who called light out of darkness in a void and vacant universe can certainly cause light to rise in the hearts of the people you're around and that you get to minister with. This is a good message of the gospel, and we should believe it. Amen? Stand with me.